Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Eye of the Duck early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great-tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great-tasting, high-quality organic dairy ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop. Open the five-bay door, pal. Have we lost the big radio contact? Hello, Hell, do you read me? What's the story? You read me, Hell? I'm Adam Vollerich. And I'm Dom Nero. And this is a podcast about movies and the scenes that make them special. What David Lynch calls Eye of the Duck scenes. An Eye of the Duck is a moment or sequence in a film that defines the whole. Each week on our podcast, we explore a movie by finding the scene at its core. From the earliest days of the medium, filmmakers have transported us beyond Earth's atmosphere. In this miniseries, we'll be charting cinema's greatest space stories, the movies where science fiction, fact, and boundless imagination converge. Welcome to Eye of the Duck, a space odyssey. We're sad in space. We are very sad in space. I've often said that my favorite genre of film is sad person in space. Uh, My second favorite genre of film is sad person on the New York City subway. Mm. And then third favorite is a robotic cop learning to be a human being. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Anything that vaguely resembles uh, Frankenstein. (laughs) Uh, But this may be sort of pushing the boundaries for you uh, as this is perhaps the saddest uh, person in the saddest <laughs> space film of all time. Yeah, this one is, um, in a word, a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> Not a funny movie at all. No. Um, although I will say that um, Dr. Gaborius, I can't yeah. remember. I get them all Yeah, confused. he's a funny guy. He's, uh, he's got jokes. He, yeah. uh, he, he likes to, he likes to get goofy. He's kind of a silly boy. Yeah. Uh, today we're talking about the 1972 Andre Tarkovsky foundational science fiction drama, Solaris. Yes. Uh, it is a Soviet era science fiction film. 
And boy, is it uh, from Russia. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is, uh, I think th- this film is two things. Number one, it is exactly what I think people think of when they hear the words <laughs> Soviet cinema. Yeah. <laughs> and number two, I also think this is what, like, what people who haven't seen 2001 and are like, isn't it going to be this, like, slow, heady, philosophical <laughs> thing for, like, you know, nerds? Like, I don't want to watch that. That's what this movie is. <laughs> That's not what 2001 is. Yeah. Well, we have to be careful. We we are treading on sacred ground here. Solaris. Yeah, this, this film is, rules. This, this is one of the, the foundational films of world cinema i guess right this is like yes this is one of the very big ones in the same way that 2001 is but perhaps not for uh the the populist audience i think this is like Mm -hmm. the other big space movie if you are like someone who cares about cinema uh Mm -hmm. you know beyond america which makes it sort of intimidating i think to engage with critically. I agree. It says a lot of the quiet parts out loud uh, in yeah. terms of its like central, like philosophical core and its themes. Almost all of the the things that this film is quote about are just spoken about by the characters. Yes. Um, but, but not in a way where you're like, this film is lacking in subtext. It's, it's <laughs> truly just like, I, I think it is this kind of Soviet cinema thing of, of uh, you know, we're in this cold, dark space together and, and we are going to, we're going to just talk about all of it. You know, this, uh, I, I watched this, uh, I'd never seen it before, unfortunately. Same. And um, I watched the Criterion Restoration, which looks really yes. great. And then uh, I, you know, I finished it and I felt as though I had still not watched the film. (laughs) Yeah, me too. It ended and I'm like, (laughs) all right, um, more work is uh, needed to be done for me to watch this movie. So (laughs) then I, uh, I went on Vimeo and I watched a ton of really, really great video essays. This seems to be a favorite, yeah, a favorite of of video essayists, uh, the great Koganada, who I'll reference later, uh, made a great essay about this film. Oh, I and, should watch that. And then I uh, watched the film again with the uh, commentary on the Criterion. Mm. And when I finished that, I, I felt like I, I had gotten closer to the meaning of this film. But I wanted to mention the commentary because I was relieved to see the two film analysts on the Criterion commentary just kind of being like, and this is one of the weaker sequences of this film, or like, this is a sequence <laughs> that uh, is just simply too long. And it's sort of a mystery as to why he kept all of this in. And it, <laughs> it, it, it was kind of refreshing to, and, and I felt like uh, freeing kind of to be like, okay, this is, you know, one of the maybe like top 10 movies on earth, like that earthly beings have ever made according to a lot of like top 10 lists. Um, <laughs> and and but these guys are just talking about it. Like it's whatever, like it's just not any, yeah, there, there are still sequences. I mean, you still have to connect with the movie. Yeah. Tarkovsky is kind of infamously a difficult filmmaker. Like it, it's, mm-hmm. he is one of those filmmakers that kind of challenges you to, do some close reading and uh, really think about what you're watching and, and how uh, the film is being formally like presented to you. 
because I think a lot of what is happening in the film is happening like between the shots and, and, you know, in the edits and uh, in the subtext. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, in that sense, like you may sit and watch this film and it kind of have it just wash over you and uh, miss a lot and not connect with a lot of it. But at the same time, I, I think there is something to be said about like, if something in the movie is not working for you and you've done the work to kind of grapple with it and it still doesn't work for you, I think it's okay to be like, yeah, like not for me. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, uh, absolutely. There's plenty of films that I, I watch, you know, not, not for this show specifically, but just in general where I'm like, yes, I fully understand what this film is doing and uh, it just doesn't click with me and that's okay. But you know, it is intimidating and kind of scary to like go on a podcast and be like, I don't like Solaris. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like like Tarkovsky. No, I, uh, I did enjoy it a lot. And I, I I should say, no, I don't not like it. Uh, but (laughs) I don't, uh, I, I mean, I'll say like, I don't connect with this film the way I connect with 2001. Um, I agree which is similarly uh, challenging as and, and difficult as a film. Um, maybe just the science fiction fun of 2001 is just more enjoyable for that, I, audiences I, I think like that's us. what it comes down to. I yeah. think that um, 2001, we talked about this when we, when we covered it, this notion that like every moment had to do one of like the following three, th- two of the following three things. And like yeah. one of them had to be entertaining. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know that Solaris is, uh, is, is nearly as interested in, uh, in entertaining you. Uh, I, I think yeah. it wants to show you things and it wants you to experience things and feel things. But entertaining is not a word that comes to mind when when thinking about this film which isn't to say that i wasn't at times completely engrossed by it uh but i i don't know that i was entertained in like that sense the few points in the film that really drift into like pure science fiction territory and you know science fiction imagery and and when when tarkovsky i feel like allows himself to have fun in space uh it is quite fun and interesting to see this completely different take on on the space film and absolutely and i will say that uh the experience of getting the criterion watching it and then watching the commentary and then like unpacking everything that i saw and and poking through all of the additional like media they have about it kind of reawakened this spark in me of um, it's just a different way to engage with the medium. Mm -hmm. I mean, we do a lot of analysis on here, but we're for the most part, almost completely, we're doing American films. And uh, I, I just don't think that American audiences, like we're not used to engaging with the art form in this way. No. And, when you like, you know, when you study cinema and when you start like reaching beyond American movies or even in Amer- in the States, like reaching for some of the more difficult and I guess you might say, I don't like metaphysical directors or people who are like really <laughs> more interested in like what this art form is capable of. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you you have a different experience and there is a joy that comes from like really getting into a movie. And yeah. uh, 
I don't know that a lot of American films can withstand the amount of analysis that a movie like this can. <laughs> I know that is true because in the process of doing this show, uh, I've definitely hit points yeah, right. with certain films where I'm just like, I am doing so much more work than the film yeah. is. <laughs> <laughs> like no one has ever sat and thought about uh, the, uh, what is it, 2002 Van Helsing film <laughs> as as much as we have. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I I think that's entirely possible, yeah. Yeah. But this sure withstands any amount of analysis that you want to do. I think you could probably study this film for the rest of your life and still be like laying on your deathbed being like, what was that final scene? Why was it <laughs> raining inside? Why did it zoom out like that? Why did like, There are just mysteries of this film. Yes, this is a very mysterious film. Uh, which is, uh, you know, similarly with 2001, it's the thing I find most intriguing about it. You know, I had the, a similar experience with with that film where I'm I'm watching it and I'm like, there is so much joy in uh, how unknowable this is. And that is such an interesting feeling to have for a show like this, where we are essentially <laughs> trying to figure out what is this thing? And instead I'm finding the the most enjoyable element of it being that like, I will never crack this. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a pretty special thing. And it might be something in cinema culture, you know, movie culture that we're kind of losing this thing of like, sometimes the director just simply will never tell you what that was supposed to mean. I feel like the closest we've gotten to sort of like a, a big moment of ambiguity in pop culture is the end of uh, Christopher Nolan's Inception, where, <laughs> you know, you're, you're left wondering, was it, you know, was this too a dream? And it's just a thing that like people debate in, in bars and restaurants and on the internet and, uh, and that's it. But it's just a yes or a no. You know, it's it's a yeah. yes or a no that they're debating in, in, that's in, that, true. in that ambiguous situation. That's different. Yeah. Yeah. But that that's the extent of it, though, for, for major American film, I think. Yeah. There is definitely a question uh, of, yeah, of more than just yes or no in the end of this film. There's also a question of like, you know, maybe the images that we are seeing are are purely like just uh, uh, expressions of like feelings. Like maybe the film itself goes beyond the reality of what the film was previously inside. And now it's just sort of like a metaphysical expression, which I mean, maybe, but I also feel like the, I, I feel like the end is pretty clearly it's the, it's like a twilight zone ending where you you've learned that, uh, after they have blasted the surface of Solaris with Kelvin's brainwaves, mm -hmm. uh, all of the guests have disappeared. They no longer, you know, their their neutrinos destabilized or whatever. But the surface of the planet is forming islands. You know, they say mm -hmm. they say that it's forming these little islands. They don't know what they are. We think he's gone back to Earth because he's at the same house we saw him at on planet right. Earth with his family. And then the camera you know, uh, pulls back and pulls back and pulls back to reveal that actually, no, he's, his house is on an island in uh, on the surface of Solaris, which makes sense when one considers that he beamed his brainwaves into the surface of the planet. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, yeah, uh, if you get into the uh, the commentary on this film, is they offer a lot of readings of what the, mm -hmm. these ending images are. 
I think you can really well. Why don't we Why don't we backtrack and and piece through this film for for listeners who haven't seen it? Yeah, we. I guess we should go through the the plot a little bit. Um, the plot is actually deceptively simple. Yeah, uh, <laughs> c- considering how uh, how how not simple the 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 film is, but essentially we have uh, we have a man on on planet Earth named mm-hmm. Chris Kelvin, who yes. is a psychologist. Mm-hmm. And he is going to be sent up to a space station uh, that studies the planet or the the sea on the mm-hmm. surface of a planet called Solaris. This is the Solaris mission, and we learn before he leaves Earth that uh, Henri Burton, a uh, a pilot who had previously been investigating Solaris. Uh, saw some incredibly strange things on the surface of the planet including big baby yeah a giant a giant (laughs) baby and a and 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 i believe a house that resembled his dead partner's house yeah um and he's like investigating the death of his partner on the surface of the planet and that's when he sees all this stuff and so he gets you know basically like recalled back to earth and you know fired from you know being a cosmonaut and the uh, the the remaining team studying Solaris is getting smaller every year because they're realizing that Solaris is unknowable and strange and and weird things keep happening to the people that do stick around to study it. Right. So that's the text of the film. But what's going on uh, shot to shot is, uh, it, again, it's just very difficult and challenging. Yeah. The way that Tarkovsky just sort of spells out scenes is just unlike what we are used to as American, you know, moviegoers, uh, the film opens with these gorgeous, gorgeous shots of this kind of like swamp, like pond territory near, uh, mm-hmm. near, uh, Kelvin, Chris Kelvin's father's house. Um, just these gorgeous, like weeds that are drifting in this pond. Yeah. It's pretty uh, stunning. It's so unreal. And yet like, you know, the, the bulk of this film takes place in space and on earth he's finding things that are just very uh i mean it, it pointedly looks alien. very much like the uh the sea on solaris yeah, you know yeah, they yeah. they i think it's it's a it's a very uh you know um clear choice to to photograph it that way and then when we get to the house there is sort of it's not a dual uh timeline but there are two things going on in that you know uh, Chris's father and this now retired pilot are interacting, but we are also, uh, they're also watching on their television, a black and white recording of, uh, the, the cosmonaut when he first returned from space Much and he's younger. being, yeah. And he's being sort of interrogated or, or I guess he's kind of debriefing this, this committee uh, about what he saw, and there's uh, there's a big kind of conspiracy kind of dwelling within all of the I don't I guess they're government officials or like whatever the Russian equivalent of NASA is. Yeah, or for some sure. of the some of the scientists are arguing like this. You know, he must have just seen hallucinations. Uh, yeah, and um, uh, but what the cosmonaut is arguing is that perhaps there is something to do with uh, conscience going on in the ocean of Solaris that the, the, the ocean itself is this 
uh, is sort of like a brain. Like it is, yeah, it is alive. I mean, the, the, the film does seem to imply over the course of its runtime that uh, Solaris itself is sentient and has the ability to read human brainwaves and interpret them and project things uh, as a result of what it's interpreted. Yeah. And once we get to the space station, which, yeah, why don't we... So, so yeah, so, so he, you know, Chris Kelvin and Burton talk and kind of argue about, you know, science versus, uh, you know, emotions and mm-hmm. things like this. And then uh, Kelvin uh, takes off into space and makes his way to Solaris. <laughs> Which the way that is carried out is uh, first he drives on a, uh, on an Asian highway, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in black and white. Which to us, which they note in the commentary that like to us, it's just like, or it's just a car going down a highway. But apparently to, you know, Soviet audiences at the time, the notion of like a super highway like this was very futuristic. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Which and also, I didn't I'm, really sure, catch. I'm, I'm sure the, the city looked completely unlike their cities. So it felt like right. this is the future. Yeah. I believe he's in Japan. Yeah. And then the trip to space is just so fucking cool and yeah. so minimal, but at the same time, so powerful. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's mostly just shots of him inside the uh, inside the capsule. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's claustrophobic and weird and strange. And uh, it's funny because on the one hand, it feels like this very like minimalistic, like budget conscious way of filming it. And on the other hand, like thematically, it completely functions yeah he's using so few like actual you know visual effects or you know and anything to that extent but it's it's so uh yeah it's it's very impactful and uh it i mean there's this great little sequence where he's like you know are we when are we gonna be launching and they're like oh you've already taken off yeah and he's (laughs) like oh i have strange and then he kind of just arrives yeah and like, uh, there's nobody there when he shows up. Yeah, I love it. It's um, it's funny. So uh, a few years ago, actually, I shot a a space movie, mm-hmm. and uh, unfortunately, it's not out yet. Otherwise, I'd I'd put it in the show notes. But there, uh, we had to do a sequence where you know the the person goes up in in the, uh, the spaceship and and goes into orbit, and we watched you know this like supercut of like you know space you know launches in in films and without realizing this the clip was from solaris i fully oh, gravitated yeah. to this because i was like <laughs> we can afford that like that's yeah, what we can yeah. afford and also look how strange and lonely this man feels in this like <laughs> very weird like claustrophobic like you know capsule and void and so we shot it exactly <laughs> like this I mean, this makes you feel like anyone can make a space movie. Yeah, yeah, because the, the so he, so he makes it to Solaris, and the the production design of the the interior of the spaceship <laughs> is it's like two futuristic hallways, and then everything else just kind of feels like a you know a brutalist a like office yeah. building and yeah. a library. <laughs> I I would love. I wish I knew enough about like Russian like Soviet history to know what that may be, you know, uh, alluding to. I know uh, there there was a lot of censorship of Soviet cinema. So everything in this film had to be approved by the government. Right. So that's why we notice like a lot of the names of the characters, like the names are like Sartorius, Gabarian, Kelvin, like they're all like 
ambiguous enough that it could be anywhere. Um, but I'm really, I'm interested as to why uh, Tarkovsky's imagining of a space station is just like a conference room. <laughs> <laughs> and it, and the other part of this is how enjoyable it is coming from, uh, you know, working through Kubrick and, and the sequel to Kubrick's film and the obsession they have with realism. And as we covered in the, in those episodes, uh, Solaris very much is a response to what Tarkovsky imagines as like not focusing on the humanity of space and more focusing right. on like the science of science fiction. Now, when we get to Solaris with Tarkovsky, he is so uninterested in like <laughs> yes. the mechanics of space. It's yes. almost funny. Like it is fun how disinterested he's like, I don't care at all. They're just going to walk around like normal. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it to, to the point that like the scene, the film's most climactic scene takes place in what looks like, you know, a steakhouse. Like it yeah. could, it could be, <laughs> it could be fully anywhere, you know. Uh, and you know, in 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 research, you know, you you realize that Tarkovsky was just straight up uninterested in space, and you know, uh, was wanted to set the whole thing on Earth anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's very funny like i feel like the a lot of the design choices must stem from from this notion uh and but, i feel like i'm sort of getting what i uh getting what i wished for because in the past few episodes i've been saying yeah, you've like, been saying like, i really I don't, care. don't care just like tell me a compelling story and i'll believe whatever you show me and now i'm watching this and i'm like they should at least like be like floating around a little bit or like well we do at least, we do like get have some, a fucking get some space floating. helmet yeah, we have like, you know, 10 seconds of floating. <laughs> yes, uh, at two hours and 11 minutes into the film's, you know, yeah. two hour and 47 minute runtime, we we finally get a little bit of zero G. Um, <laughs> all of this to say, they make he makes it on board the spaceship and he's been told at this point that there are only three uh, people left on the, uh, on the space station, these three scientists, one of whom he knows from, uh, you know, being a psychologist on planet earth. Mm -hmm. And he learns very quickly that that man, um, Dr. Gabarian, Dr. Gabarian, Dr. Gabarian has, uh, has taken his own life. Right. And so we are left with Dr. Snout and Dr. Sartorius. Kelvin is upset by this. He starts to settle in and very quickly we sort of, begin to understand that the reason why uh, Gabarius has uh, has taken his own life is because being in orbit of Solaris means that you will, uh, you know, begin to be visited by uh, physical manifestations of, you know, memories and people from your past. Yes. And not always, uh, I mean, there is something sort of uh, suspicious going on in this movie of... Uh, you know, Chris Kelvin, and we'll get into in a bit, is lucky enough to be visited by his uh, deceased wife, if, if you want to say lucky. But <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I'm using that word because it seems like the ocean of Solaris is not uh, perfect. Like it's not it's not always making flawless uh, replicas. So mm-hmm. in in one moment we see and just for like a glimpse we see a a small man run into a door um who I guess we are supposed to understand is one of the other scientists like uh guest as they call them right and also we see uh yeah the other two scientists uh Sartorius uh, he appears with 
his uh his his clothes are ripped he looks like sort of not so like great and, yeah and we're wondering like who's his guest like what we yeah. never meet their guests i mean there is a little girl who appears at one at one moment but there yeah. is this very cool like horror film thing happening of like man like you're lucky you got your your ex-wife because like you don't even want to see who we got <laughs> <laughs> yes um but of course kelvin freaks out puts her in a spaceship and launches her like, <laughs> into into the void. Yeah, uh, he just like wastes a pod. He's like, yeah, he hey, just, come in, come into this pod for a second. I want to show you something. <laughs> and then, like, jettisons her into space. <laughs> Which is uh, deeply unsettling. Um, and then, of course, you know, the snout and sartorius are like that isn't even going to work like you know, she's going to be back, the, <laughs> you be know, back. you're going to go to sleep and while you're asleep she's going to rematerialize in here so that was a, a a waste of a pod and uh you know but that being said if you do go crazy again and decide to do that again uh at least make sure to activate the pod from a different room so you don't catch fire again right because he sort of maims his face uh, mm-hmm. And then, so then we are presented with another kind of horror film notion of you can't get rid of them. They'll just keep coming back. Yes. Like, so it, Kelvin's wife, Hari, uh, returns and uh, we see that she is terrified anytime she is not around him. Yes. Um, and we learn that the scientific reason for this is because the guests are made of unstable neutrinos and they need mm-hmm. to remain uh, close to the uh, the person that dreamt them up. Uh, otherwise, they will start to, uh, you know, deteriorate and collapse. Yeah, and I think this is one of the central, like, thematic devices of the film here of, you know, Chris is a very depressed individual. Oh, yeah, and, deeply so. Yes, and he happens to find himself in a place where his depression is made you know, manifest. Mm-hmm. And the ocean of Solaris is kind of this like uh, swirling abyss of darkness and, and, and uh, memory. Um, so, you know, how thematically apt that like when he is not in this swirling abyss, his, you know, depressive memories and, and hauntings cease to exist. But mm-hmm. boy, like if he chooses to stay there, which so many of us who suffer from depression often do like, you know, when you're in a depressive swirl, you, uh, you, you will, you will not relieve yourself of, of, no, you, you know, these past the memories. Out. Yeah. And so long as you stay there, so long as, you know, they are alive and, and that's what's going on here. It's, it's one of truly like one of the most beautiful, like, yeah. you know, uh, uses of, I don't know, metaphor in film. It, it's just such a beautiful device. Yeah, and it speaks to what I love so much about the genre in general, which is, you know, so much of what we're covering here is going to eventually boil down to people will literally go into the deepest vacuum of space instead of going to therapy. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, you know, especially in a film like this, where he's like, yeah, I would rather go to space than than deal with the fact that my my wife is no longer alive. And uh, as a result of that, is treated to an experience where he literally cannot escape yes. the depression he tried to leave behind. And it's compelling too. I mean, you know, if you have someone you've lost, someone like dearly close to you, you can easily imagine like getting them back and 
and uh, and and this is what we'll get to now, which is basically yeah. how the film closes out. Of like, I mean, why would I leave? Like, they're here, you know. Yeah. Like, what would what in what world would I like go somewhere else where this person is no longer here, and yet this person is not real, you know? The thing that you're you're missing in the ending there is that uh, there's there's a couple things that I, we should hit before we yeah we hit the yeah, ending. yeah 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 number one. The, the longer that, that Kelvin keeps Hari around, like he doesn't try to get rid of her. And he, he sort of abandons all of his, you know, mission plans, right. whatever it was he was here to do. He's not doing any of it. He's just spending time with his, sure. his uh, with, with Hari, with, with this manifestation of his, of his yeah. dead wife. After the and, first time he, he shoots her into space. Uh, yeah. The, the second time he walks out of her presence, she literally explodes through the door with like superhuman strength. (laughs) And then from that point on, he's like, all right, I'm never leaving her side again. Right. And, you know, speaking of that sort of metaphor, but, you know, he essentially gives this, uh, he he gives this manifestation of his grief more and more power by continuing to engage with it. And the more that he engages with Hari, the more human she becomes. And the more human she becomes, we, you know, we, she, she, she sort of becomes her past self. And and we, we learn that Hari had actually taken her own life, uh, you know, 10 years ago. And so the longer she remains alive, the more human she becomes, the more it seems like she might want to kill herself again. Yeah. And he continues to sort of like feed her by loving her up until the point that uh, Sartorius and and Snout execute this plan to like pound the surface of Solaris with Kelvin's brainwaves, which causes all of the visitors uh, or the guests rather to, uh, to evaporate. They, they are there. There's no longer any disturbances on board the ship. I think the the scientific explanation in here. First of all, I think the the beam they use to shoot it out is called the annihilator. Right? Yes, it is called the annihilator. <laughs> Very good. Uh, <laughs> the the explanation here is, uh, I think what they call it is an encephalogram of of uh, of Chris's you know his brain waves. So the way that the ocean manifests these beings is from our sleep like yeah, whatever extra dreams. extraterrestrial force is at play here and this is one of the the better extraterrestrials i think we'll meet in this space series is it you know it kind of it speaks to this notion that like how can you create a uh, an alien like how can you create something that we haven't seen before this is like as as close as you can get i think to something truly unique and like otherworldly mm-hmm. of like the living force is this kind of ocean of consciousness. It's fucking yeah. cool. Uh, and the idea is, uh, so if the ocean can um, manifest your dreams, then the scientists believe perhaps with our waking thoughts and this, this beam uh, we can then, you know, use that power against them, I guess, and sort of, and wipe it out. And Chris can send his waking thoughts into the abyss and have his thoughts be like, get out of here. (laughs) And that will be made manifest by, you know, annihilating the ocean. Am I wrong? Well, yeah, I think, I think what it is, it's, 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 um, 
when we say that the the surface of Solaris is an ocean of consciousness and that it feeds on us while we sleep, what's really happening is your like untamed, uncontrolled uh, subconscious is being read and re- and reflected back at you. So right. all, all these things that you're refusing to like process and think about while you are conscious that take over in your sleeping mind, that's what gets reflected back uh, at you. Whereas during the day when your conscious mind has power over your subconscious mind, you have the ability to think like, make this madness stop. And the planet is like, okay, I heard you. Right, 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 right. Yeah, and uh, he initially does not want to do it, right? Of course. No, but uh, because Hari is becoming more and more human and becoming more and more of herself, we she does in fact uh, no longer want to be alive. She wants to be dead. And so she right. asks she asks Sartorius and Snout to, uh, to help her end her life, uh, which means that... that Chris uh, has to has to do the uh, the annihilator, and there's just so many classic themes at play here. Like now, it's becoming this sort of thing that you know it's the Frankenstein thing, or you know uh, the classic robot thing of like Hari is now becoming more human than the humans, right? And so I, I chose not to listen to the the commentary for this one, mm-hmm. and I chose not to to watch any video essays or anything like that because again, with a film like this, that's so unknowable i find such joy in that and i almost in the same way that i did with 2001 i almost tried to just sort of like you know clear my mind of anything until my subconscious spat something back at me that i could use as like a way to read my scene so i didn't do any of that kind of work when with Mm -hmm. with this film I, i approached it very very differently and when it came to sort of like thinking about uh what was going on in the film here one thing that occurred to me the I don't know. You can tell me if it's 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 a popular reading. Uh, is the notion that um, Hari eventually becomes human enough that she can sleep? Mm. And I was wondering a thought a thought that occurred to me, and I wonder if you perhaps had the same thought that he has been sleeping and manifesting her from his subconscious. There's a moment where like the color flips and and you know yeah. he changes, and I wondered. In her sleep, has she manifested Chris? Like, oh, has she that. has she gone to sleep and has Chris sort of been replaced by like, you know, in the same way that Hari had, had you know been replaced by like his manifestation of who Hari yeah. used to be? Has Hari replaced Chris with who Chris used to be for her? And I if love so, that. and if so, is that the version of Chris that's willing to activate the annihilator? <laughs> I mean, I think all of these readings are like available to us in this film. It's one of the joys of this film. Yeah. And it's also, uh, you know, you and I talk a lot about story versus plot and not just on our show, but also like in the work that we do for ourselves and our writing and our projects of like how hard it is to land on a story that, uh, you know, works on both levels, meaning, you know, yeah. the plot at hand and also the actual story, the subtext that you're trying to to tell, the meaning you're trying to convey. And this is just one of those ideas that's just so perfectly, you know, it's this, this there could not be a, a more perfect intersection of, you yeah. know, that everything is available to the storyteller here. Like the, the, the loss, the mourning, the depression, 
and you know the the very like just natural yearning for your past it's all on display here in in this device of a space station that manifests your thoughts yeah you know like it's, it could uh, not be more it's, it's so cool it's just one of those perfect things uh i feel like there are very few few like plot and story like naturally uh intertwining stories out there it's just a yeah i mean it comes from stanislav lem's book and he's a polish author so (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) we'll get we'll get to in the production history but sort of so yeah so they they use the annihilator hurry disappears and chris has to decide whether or not to go back to earth or stay on the space station right hurry does kill herself we should mention yes she drinks liquid oxygen and uh freezes Yes, it's a pretty brutal death. <laughs> yeah, it's a horrible, horrible thing to look yeah. at. Um, it's kind of like the um, the dramatic version of uh, there's this kill in Jason X, uh, the <laughs> uh, one where Jason goes to space, where he he freezes someone with liquid nitrogen and then like hits them and they they just like you know they they crack and fall to pieces. Um, I feel like since you mentioned that and evoked that, I I, I think. As a as a tribute <laughs> to the ocean of Solaris, <laughs> we have to manifest it now. The ocean of Solaris has manifest. We have to do it now. How that can we be, not do Jason that would be X in this? Extremely series? funny. It that qualifies, funny. does it, it not? Does, it does qualify. You know, you know uh, <laughs> the other good reason to cover Jason X. Yeah, David Cronenberg is in the film. Oh my! Yeah, all right, we have to do it. <laughs> I mean, we'll probably do a few bonuses, but that's got to be one of them. Yeah, maybe we'll do Jason X. That could be a good time. Uh, we love space horror. <laughs> anyway, uh, as, as we said earlier, you know, he, he's faced with this decision and he seemingly decides to return to Earth because he, you know, he ends up back where he started at his father's house. But everything's a little weird. It's raining right. indoors. His dad seems to actually love him and hug mm. him, which is not something we uh, have ever perceived between them before. And of course, we we sort of you know pull back and back and back to reveal it's it's just a a manifestation on an island in the ocean of Solaris. And you know, uh, beautiful ending and like amazing. This is the I. It's funny you mentioned Inception earlier because I also I've noted Nolan here too and. I think that he is thinking of a movie like this when he makes Inception. I mean, and we have no and way you of see knowing, the backs but... of those kids' heads as they're running down the hill, and yeah, and, it's yeah. the same. I think Inception, as much as it is a uh, a dream movie, it is also kind of a tribute to this film. Uh, I mean, we know full well that Nolan is. That's true, you know, actually. He, right? I, I, yeah, there's the whole uh, you know Marion Cotillard's it, character yes, is yeah. exactly like one to one with this. Yeah. And it's, uh, I also wrote down. Like, wow. That's I completely. Yeah. Wow. What is the, uh, what is this, this manic pixie dream girl in this film? I mean, uh, I guess it's, so she's not manic and she's. Manic kind of pixie dream girl. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is this very like, uh, distinct presence in movies that like, so, you know, whereas Manic Pixie Dream Girls are, are usually uh, living beings who are, you know, these forces of chaos and like allure. Uh, these like Marion Cotillard in, in Inception and, and Harry in this film, uh, they're both dead, right? But, and, but they represent the last time the protagonist was truly alive. 
Yeah. There's got to be a word for these. Maybe, I guess, yeah, manifest pixie dream girl. <laughs> manifest pixie space girl. No, dr- dream girl, because she's born of his subconscious. That's true. Dead manifest pixie dream girl. <laughs> manifest pixie death girl, maybe. Maybe uh, it is, maybe the, the issue here is the word pixie, uh, and we could sub in something for yes. so manifest undead dream girl. Yeah, that's very good. Yeah. Dream woman. It's it's twenty twenty. Dream woman. You're correct. It's disrespectful. <laughs> uh, and maybe it's my storytelling brain that is always on. Uh, you know uh, that led me to this conclusion watching this film. I, I'm not saying that like to brag. Like I, you know, I tell stories myself. But Dom's that, very like, smart. My uh, I I have a uh, an an anxious impulse that never you know stops in my brain of. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what's going on and uh, quite often being mistaken. I reached the end of this film and my take on the ending, which I, I, I'm wondering if this take uh, could work is that uh, I was like, Oh, this is like a, this is a horrifying notion that now the ocean of Solaris has descended on earth. And that's why it's raining inside. And that's why, Oh, uh, this fog, this cloud has has surrounded the the uh, kind of uh, tranquil uh, opening landscape that you know is is Chris's childhood home, and like now these aliens are like coming for us. <laughs> That's so interesting. Yeah, is that, that is that like could that be? I, I don't like. Could there's be. nothing in the film that refutes it, except we don't know if the Solaris Ocean can can like float around but it seems to be a living being so i don't know i guess anything is possible um to me it just felt like a classic sort of twilight zone reveal where yeah i guess you know, so. you, you you get to the end and you and you're like he didn't go home and the question then then becomes did he choose to land on solaris or was he like you know did solaris lead him there you know right right I think a lot of these questions will also sort of uh, change in shape when uh, when we draw some conclusions next week for uh, we'll be doing the the Steven Soderbergh Solaris, yes, which is a way more sort of uh, American take on this story, and the the ocean of Solaris in that film is more of kind of like a fog in space. And maybe mm. that, since I've I've seen that movie before, maybe and I don't remember it as well as you know, but uh, maybe that's where my head is going. That like I can imagine like a space fog, you know, following mm-hmm. the astronaut back to Earth. Uh, but I guess an ocean doesn't really make sense. <laughs> it is very much <laughs> an ocean in this film. It is an ocean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is not the ending of of the. So, so to well, yeah, I, don't, Solaris, I haven't seen it yet. Don't spoil yeah. it. I, I don't really remember how it ends. <laughs> Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate, Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, all in a single sugar-free stick. Liquid IV is perfect for daily use before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, or on long flights. Basically, anytime you need a pick-me-up, however you hydrate. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order 
when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com. Whether you're shipping 100 packages a month or thousands, ShipStation lets you automate routine shipping tasks and easily handle returns. Manage orders, print labels, compare rates, optimize every shipment, and automate delivery notifications with ShipStation's easy-to-use dashboard. Plus, you can access industry-leading discounted rates from USPS, UPS, DHL, and Global Post, with discounts up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. Over 130,000 companies have grown their e-commerce businesses with ShipStation, and 98% of companies that stick with ShipStation for a year become customers for life. Optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Use promo code WONDERY today at ShipStation.com to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com promo code WONDERY. Donatas Banyonis. Vladislav Dvorjetsky, Natalia Bondarchuk play the leading roles in Solaris. The scene is somewhere in the cosmos. The time, the distant future. The place, a planet yet unknown to us. Okay, now in uh, in our production history segment, um, we will watch the gymnastics that must occur for Adam to uh, pronounce all of these Russian <laughs> names. Good luck, Adam. I've been wondering all week how you're going to do this. <laughs> so normally, when I see a name that I don't uh, know how to pronounce, I furiously Google uh, numerous different people pronouncing it to try and sort of average out what is the accurate pronunciation. Uh, but because every single name here was uh, going to be impossible for me, I've decided to wing it. Oh my God, I'm, I'm very excited for this. <laughs> Apologies to all Russian listeners. Uh, I mean, it's just, I, these are just, they're tough names to pronounce. Look, they're tough names. And yeah. as someone with Russian heritage, I don't feel bad oh. about mispronouncing them. Oh, there you go. Yes. Um. Five seconds after my parents hear this, they will call me to tell me that I in fact don't have... Russian heritage. I'm pretty sure I got some in there. I don't know. We're just sort of Eastern European Jewish. So there's definitely some Russia in there. Anyway. There's got to be. There's got to be. Solaris, written by Andrei Tarkovsky, Friedrich Gorenstein, and Stanislaw Lem, based on the novel by Stanislaw Lem. Directed by Andrei Tarkovsky. With cinematography by Yadam Yusov, who is known for his previous collaborations with Tarkovsky, such as Ivan's Childhood, The Steamroller and the Violin, and Andrei Rublev. Edited by Ludmila Fejanova and Nina Marcus. Starring Natalia Bondachuk, Donatas Banionis, Yuri Yaver, Vladislav Dovzetsky, Nikolai Grinko, Anatoly Solonitsin, Olga Barnett, Vitalik Komirimum, Olga Kidzilova, and Tatiana Malik. This is probably also a good time to point out that all the scenes that you will hear in this film will just be uh, Russian people speaking with uh, probably like uh, Bach... Uh, music with a synthesizer playing in the background. <laughs> so uh, enjoy. You enjoy. won't understand any of it unless you speak Russian. <laughs> okay, so in 1968, 
Tarkovsky sought to adapt the Stanislaw Lem book Solaris. Um, this is because his previous film, Andrei Rublev, has not been released. Uh, the Soviet Union basically bans the 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 film from from release because the Soviet Union uh, it, it, their, their official position is that they're an atheist country. And Andrei Rublev is very much a uh, film about, you know, faith and, and Christianity. Mm. And so uh, it's, it is seen as challenging, you know, ideas of the state. So they, they do not allow the film to be released at that time. And then his follow-up script that he has sent in for approval, uh, A White White Day, uh, is also rejected. Although later on is, uh, he's able to make it under the title The Mirror. So he chooses this book because Lem is a respected writer in the USSR and uh, commercially felt like it would be a solid bet. Ah, I see. Yeah. And he also very specifically wants to bring emotional depth to science fiction as he feels that this is uh, something that is lacking from most of the films at the time, especially 2001 A Space Odyssey, which he calls (laughs) phony on many points. Um, He says... For a true work of art, the fake must be eliminated. You know, there's a lot of uh, discussion about Tarkovsky, and uh, I guess he he wrote a lot in a diary that I guess, mm-hmm. you know, film historians have gotten access to over the years. Yes. And there's a lot of discussion from him about uh, for a filmmaker to become an artist, he or, or she must bring themselves into the art and bring uh, truth to it. Yeah. There are some cool quotes from him saying that, uh, without personal meaning in your work, then, uh, it doesn't qualify as art for him. And so right, you can, cause then it's not creative yeah. expression. It's just technical execution. Yeah. And that is such a kind of radical way of, <laughs> of exploring 2001 i mean what you just said you know that the technical that is such a 2001 is so much about the craft like Mm -hmm. uh you know but i mean i think we we reach conclusions in our episode that feel very personal to me i do think there is like a lot of humanity and maybe in the exploration of like what it means to not be human uh kubrick ends up like finding some really, uh, you know, significant stuff about like the human experience. It feels like a a deliberately inhuman film and like all good art is able to hold up a mirror to you. Yeah. You bring yourself to the theater. You see what you, you you see and feel things in it as a result of that, you know? And that's so Uh, funny because Me in a very literal sense. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And yes, Adam's scene in 2001 was him uh, staring at his own reflection in his <laughs> monolith of a, uh, of a TV screen. Uh, it's so funny that you mentioned the mirror because that's one of the best monologues in this film. Uh, one of the mm-hmm. scientists is saying that we, we're so obsessed with ourselves you know, we're not searching for extraterrestrial life. What, what, like, what we're really searching for is ourselves. Like, we want a mirror, which like, is which is what all wanna... good space films are about. Yes, you go to yes. the ends of the universe and you find yourself. You find yourself, yeah. Or your you dead and, wife. You and the void, and the void and you. Yes. So Tarkovsky hires production designer Mikhail Romadine, and Romadine uh, and and Tarkovsky generally dislike sci-fi novels. 
Uh, I alluded to this earlier, but they basically want the film to take place almost entirely on planet Earth. <laughs> and so Tarkovsky then collaborates with Friedrich Gorenstein and Lem to write the first draft of the script in 1969. And this version had uh, two thirds of the film taking place on planet Earth uh, and was drastically different from the uh, the source material. When they finally get off Earth, I feel like is when this film really, really picks up and I agree. Really starts to like starts to rock. Uh, although, I mean, the Earth sequence, I guess, just doesn't do that much for me. But that might be the case in, across like several space movies, right? Like, you're never that like stoked about what happens on Earth in a space movie. It depends on the film. You know, yeah. uh, there's going to be a few that we talk about here where what happens on Earth end up being the sort of defining, you know, elements of what happens in yeah, space and, and etc. Uh, both from a plot story or, or and also a, a theme uh, point uh, perspective. But I think that the thing the thing that Tarkovsky is is setting out to do here is is sort of imbue the genre with emotion and make an emotional statement. And that first, you know, 45 minutes or however long that you spend on Earth is almost emotionless. It, you know, because Kelvin has yet to, uh, you know, encounter Hari, it is mostly gorgeous imagery combined with uh, exposition, all of yeah. which is a little bit more difficult to process if it is in Russian and subtitled. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's just a different kind of movie than what we're used to, I think. As yeah. well. Yes. So Tchaikovsky gives this version of the script to uh, Mosfilm, which is the, the biggest film studio in the Soviet Union, and they dislike it. <laughs> and Lem also dislikes it because it has, uh, you know, it, it, he, he's drifted so far from the source material. Uh, Romadine said, Lem was adamantly against it. He said, I forbid you to make this film with such an interpretation <laughs> of my Solaris. It was wow. either abandon the idea of this film altogether or adhere more closely to the novel. It was a real dilemma because everything was at stake. A budget had already been approved and the first stages had already been completed. So they then have to, uh, you know, do some heavy rewrites. So they, uh, they, they remove much of what was uh, going to take place on Earth and, and set it in, in space. And they remove a, a secondary plot that involved Kelvin having a second wife. Ah, <laughs> so funny. It's like, dude, go to space. Like, that's what the, the whole thing is. Like, but it's, you can't it's stay on Earth. Though, go, to, go to space. <laughs> it's interesting that these two sort of like totemic, you know, sci-fi films are made by people that are looking at the genre and being yeah, like, this genre fucking it. sucks. I need to fix I know. it. <laughs> well, this is 72 and uh, 2001 Four years is, later than... Yeah, 68. Yeah. And I think there is a lot of science fiction out there, you know, in, in the 60s that uh, I guess a lot of people are unhappy with, right? The genre is still fairly new in film. And, and it's not respected by the, you know, the, the mainstream yet. Yeah, yeah. Tarkovsky originally intended to cast his ex-wife Irma Rausch as Hari, but later met B.B. Anderson in June of 1970 and felt that she would be a benefit for the role. However, despite this, he ends up casting Natalia Bondarchuk. Um, Tarkovsky knew Bondarchuk as they were both students at the State Institute of Cinematography, which is the, you know, Soviet film school. Uh, and she was actually the person that first gave him the, the novel Solaris. 
he had initially auditioned her in, in 1970 and felt that she was too young for the role. Uh, and instead, basically, uh, he, he recommended her for a different film. Uh, he, she ends up starring in You and I, which is a film by uh, Larissa Shapitko. Uh, but then when Tarkovsky sees you and I, he's like, oh, fuck, she's so good. And casts her in Solaris. <laughs> Weird idea to have your ex-wife play your uh, play the main character's deceased space wife. Weird, except when you consider that, again, this is a, a man who's like, we must put like truth into our films. Like, yeah, you must yeah. p- put yourself in the film. So, you know, he's like, I'm making a film about a guy with a weird relationship with his ex. Guess I'm going to put mine in the movie. Yeah, because we didn't mention in the plot summary that they kind of discuss their relationship and... Uh, seems bad. Yeah, uh, it seems like Chris uh, didn't really love Hari when she was alive, but right. now that which she's is why gone, she takes her own life is because yeah. she she feels unloved, and it's uh, she takes her own life using um, she injects herself right with something that Chris. Yes, he's home, a scientist. Like, lab, he has right? yeah, he has all these samples in the in the house, and he's like you know saying like stay away from all of these samples; they're really right. dangerous. And she mixes them all up together and injects herself with all of them. Right. So is he a psychologist or scientist? What the heck? Like, what psychologist has like, you know, like arsenic at home? <laughs> I don't know, man. Uh, so, yeah. So he, uh, uh, he did not love her when she was alive. And then now that she's gone, he misses her and loves her more than he ever has. Uh, yes. Yes. Bummer. You don't know what you got till it's gone kind of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. He then casts uh, Anatoly Solonitsyn uh, as Sartorius. Uh, Solonitsyn had played the title character in Andrei Rublev, uh, and he's very good in it. Uh, and he also casts Nikolai Grinko as Kelvin's father, uh, who had also been in uh, Andrei Rublev, as well as Ivan's childhood. Mm-hmm. After filming, uh, you mentioned his diary already, but uh, Tarkovsky uh, rated everyone's uh, performances in his diary from best to worst, <laughs> uh, and he rated them in the following order. Bondachuk, Jory Javert, Anatoly Solonitsyn, Donatas Banionis, Vladislav Dorvzetsky, and Nikolai Grinko. Uh, and he wrote, Natalia has outshone everyone. Wow, but his main character, the, the gentleman who plays Chris Kelvin, is like pretty far down the line. Yeah. <laughs> what a bummer. Yeah, I would be very, uh, I'd be very upset if I received, yeah. uh, received that note. <laughs> You're the worst. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Production uh, is eventually authorized by the State Committee for Cinematography in summer of 1970, uh, and he's given approval to have a two-hour and 20-minute runtime. Uh, Production then begins in March of 1971. Production filmed on location at uh, Zvenigorod, which was near Moscow, uh, and soundstage work was completed at Mosfilm Studios. And then, of course, there's additional footage of Burton driving, uh, which is shot in Alaska, And as you mentioned already in Tokyo. Tarkovsky uh, reunited here with his uh, longtime cinematographer, Yadam Yusov. Uh, However, this film pushes their relationship to its limit. And it is the last time uh, that they work together. Uh, R.I.P. Cinematography is is definitely one of the 
the more fun parts of this film. Uh, the way the camera just kind of tracks around in these really long yeah. takes. It's they're really, really mesmerizing really, too. Like you, you yeah. sort of realize like, oh wow, I've just been in this shot for minutes. How did I get here? Yeah, which which really works on a thematic level too. Of like, yeah, yes. How long have we been on this fucking space station? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So for the color scenes of the films, they shot on Eastman Kodak, uh, which was a film stock that you could not really get uh, in the Soviet Union, and so they purchased it specifically for the film, which I just think is cool. Yeah, there's so there's this interplay between the color and the black and white in in this movie. Sometimes it seems diegetic in that, like when they watch the footage from you know the retired cosmonaut, that's in black and white. And there's when, another and mo- when he watches the video log from his deceased yeah. coworker. Yeah, other times uh, seems like Tarkovsky is just like, and now it's in black and white. <laughs> I feel like it. I mean, it has to. I mean, because it's established diegetically yeah, as like being placed in the past. Like I, f- yeah. I, f- I feel as though it, there's there's this sort of like emotional grounding of it. Um, yeah when it happens later on um which you could interpret as you know the past is is alive in this moment or mm-hmm. or any number of ways to create the solaris ocean production used acetone aluminum powder and dyes um, so it's the same thing that kubrick did it was yeah. like went to a dark room and just you know poured a bunch of chemicals in a vat like yeah a, yeah like a crazy chemist and, yeah. and ended up with this swirling you know wild looking you know situation it also looks very real for, uh, I, I mm-hmm. just assumed it was just like helicopter shots of an ocean, but. I, I, I couldn't, uh, I didn't find anything to confirm this, but like, I do kind of feel like that stuff is composited over, yeah, you know, images be, of right? like actual oceans and, and yeah. actual clouds. And, and then I felt like there were moments where I was seeing like, okay, I feel like I'm looking at, you know, a shot of the ocean with clouds in the sky that's then being like mirrored onto itself uh, at like a different opacity. And then also this other stuff is being, you know, composited on, on top of that. Um, It's pretty effective. Could be be wrong, but I I think that's what it is. And yeah, it's incredibly abstract while also feeling very real. Right. That's the thing with, with these minimal visual effects, um, a lot is accomplished and it stands, you know, the test of time because it's so minimal. Like you're not going to look at an ocean and be like, that doesn't look real anymore. Like that'll always look real. (laughs) The ocean will always look like the ocean. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So Romadine, uh, you know, the, uh, the production designer, he wanted the look of the spaceship to feel lived in and beaten down rather than clean and futuristic. Um, you know, we were joking earlier that it looks like a steakhouse, uh, and <laughs> you know, that's, that's part of the vibe. Uh, and this is, this has to do with, in some ways, uh, Tarkovsky's reaction to 2001. Romadine said, to tell you the truth, Andre had a strong negative reaction. He felt it was exactly how one should not film science fiction. When you film science fiction, it should be extremely down-to-earth visually. It must rigorously avoid the fantastic in order to be believable. He said, let's do it the way we agreed on before. Let's make our space station look like a broken-down old bus and not like some futuristic (laughs) space utopia. Wow, I love that. It's such a different approach. Yeah, which is great. It's good to see something so completely unlike, uh, you know, 2001. But he uses the word believable and like that's what Kubrick's whole thing is in that film. No, like Kubrick's making... whole thing was accurate. Uh, that's true. That's true. Yeah. yeah accurate this, versus believability. 
Whereas in this, uh, it, it's really, it looks like, like the boiler room of like a hotel or something. Yeah. I mean, like it's you, awful. And there's like you, trash everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it truly looks like this space station has been monitoring this ocean for decades. And like, which it has. That, in which the it has. In the film. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's been there for decades and no one has cleaned up after themselves. Yeah. <laughs> Tarkovsky had originally given Romadin uh, science magazines for him to base his designs off of, but Romadin found this unhelpful and felt that he needed to go with an aesthetic first approach. So truly <laughs> the complete inverse of, uh, of the 2001 plan. Right. Fuck, fuck science. Yes. Um, <laughs> the one place where they, they didn't say fuck science is that uh, Romadin collaborates with a scientist and engineer named Lev Lubachev, and Lubachev gave them a 1960s mainframe computer, which they then used as set decoration. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you get just enough that it feels like, okay, I think this could be a space station. Yeah, exactly. For some of the sets, Romadin designed and built a mirrored room, which Yusov could hide inside of to not be seen by the camera. So he's literally in like a box that is covered in mirrors. Um, Romadin said, I had this idea to cover the ceiling, the floor, and the walls with mirrors. The effect would be multiple reflections compounded a million times. The cameraman, Yadam Yusov, would be hidden inside a mirrored sphere suspended by a crane with only a narrow opening for a camera. Inside the room, we would place a neon mobile and we would have people in neon costumes walk through. Two or three people would be enough to create an image of a never-ending crowd. Wow. Yeah. We don't end up getting that. Yusov, uh, instead of filming the library lev- levitation scene, we knew the American method beforehand, but we had no equipment of that type. We had to find our own way to film that scene. This scene being the scene with anti-gravity, uh, in the, in the, the one scene of sort of zero G in the film. The device was simple. The crane with the actors is raising, the other crane with the camera is raising as well but the crane with the actors covers the background decoration. We had to pay attention to this. We also noticed that if both raising motions were the same, the effect looked bland. A certain dissonance or lack of parallelism in the movements of both cranes was necessary. But if the difference in the motions were too great, the crane would become visible. It's, it's so fascinating to see the Soviet side of things. You know, mm-hmm. there, there is such a uh, rich like legacy of Soviet cinema yeah. Um it's not like Hollywood but it was it is one of like the founding, you know, uh nations of the medium and it's cool to see in the 70s like where they were uh production-wise. I'm surprised to hear about the use of all these cranes but uh yeah, when you watch the film like of course they're using cranes. They have all these these towering shots. Um Yeah you just don't think of the Soviet Union as like this rich uh, <laughs> um, production, like Hollywood world. But I guess, you know, they had, they had their own thing going on there. I, I have seen so few Soviet films from this era. The only Soviet stuff I've seen is like, you know, the really old stuff, like from the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've seen some of that. And then I've seen, uh, I've seen uh, Andrei Rublev, uh, my other oh, nice. uh which has some humongous epic set pieces. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. I also just love the ingenuity of this effect, you know, and, and I love that both uh, in both this and 2001, actors' bodies are sort of used to hide the like mechanics of the effects themselves. Yeah, like I, I think that's really, that. <laughs> really fun. 
But I love this. I love this notion that it's just like, yeah, we just we put the camera on a crane, we put the actors on a crane. They're both rising up away from the the set, so you get the feeling of floating. We have to make sure they're not like imperfect, you know, harmony with one another. Otherwise, right. it just like feels like nothing. Yeah. Wow. So cool. Romadin included painters done by the old masters, uh, meaning paintings uh, from you know before the eighteen hundreds. Uh, that had been trained in artistic guilds. Uh, This was done at Tarkovsky's request uh, because he wanted the film to have a feeling of importance. He felt that the medium was still relatively new and needed to be seen as a mature art form. An icon of Andrei Rublev uh, is actually featured in the film. Uh, uh, He's in uh, Kelvin's room. Um, It's a little, little, little bust of him. Oh really? <laughs> That's yeah. a lot of little trinkets in the in in these rooms that are they point them out like a lot in the commentary, um, mm. books and things that they they're saying like they may have relevance, they may be important, or they may just be like things they just wanted to stuff in there to <laughs> to have mm-hmm. the astronauts like be you know be standing around. What was the last Kaufman film called? Um, uh, I'm thinking of ending things. Yeah, I think in I'm thinking of ending things. There's like a shot of like a stack of like DVDs or like VHS tapes, and oh, people yeah. like go, going nuts trying to like decode what those were. And then I, I think you just <laughs> said like, I don't know, it's just a bunch of fucking VHS tapes, whatever. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's always the thing with with uh, art uh, with what do we call it? Production design. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything in the frame is important, but <laughs> except when it is cigars. <laughs> it's just a cigar, right? Yeah. So Akira Kurosawa actually visited the film set and he was so impressed with uh, with the spaceship and, and what they'd built there that, that he told Romadine that uh, he might like to make his uh, his next film at Moss Film Studios. That's so cool. Yeah. I love the this, you know, exchange between all of these giants of, of world cinema. Yeah. And they were friends, um, Kurosawa so cool. and, and Tarkovsky. Tarkovsky wanted the film to uh, be without a traditional musical score at first. He hired uh, Eduard Artemiev to uh, compose ambient sounds to function as the score. Uh, they had initially met in 1970 through Romadin. But Artemiev said that he he worked with electronic music, which was new at the time. Tarkovsky came by his studio with Yadim Yusov uh, to see the work. And two months later, you know, he's, he's taken with it and he, and he asked him to write the score. Artemiev said of what Tarkovsky wanted... We met and straight away he said several things which took me by surprise. He said, I don't need music in my film. I need a person to orchestrate the sounds of nature. I need a composer's ear and a composer's hand to organize the sounds surrounding us according to the laws of music. At some point I told him, you can't do it without any music at all. If you want to use only background noise, it will all be dead. You need to somehow liven it up. And then it occurred to me that we could introduce orchestral sounds, voices, tapping of the strings, light as the rustle of grass, very subtle. He liked this idea very much, and that's how we slowly created a musical language. And the the music used in here, uh, mainly this this Bach composition, yes, with this uh, electronic, uh, you know, it, it's sort of like a very classical sounding Bach, and and then the there's this intrusion of this synthesizer, which makes it like otherworldly and yes. And, and, and that, and that piece of, that piece of music is called, I call you, I call to you, Jesus Christ. Uh, and this is uh, earth's theme and also used as, uh, as the basis of Ahari's theme. Yeah. It's really good. And it works on a lot of thematic levels, having like this classical music injected with this electronic, you know, 
future science fiction stuff. Yes. Uh, I mentioned earlier that Yadam Yusov and Tarkovsky, uh, their relationship came to an end after making this film. Uh, however, they did eventually patch things up. Uh, Yusov said, I went to Milan because Solaris was being shown there as part of a retrospective. The organizers had invited me to participate in that. That was when I met Andre. When I found out Tarkovsky was in Milan, I phoned immediately and paid him a visit. It was a magnificent meeting. Tarkovsky had just extended his permit to stay. We sat until the next morning talking. So the film drove them apart, and it also brought them back together. Um, you know, whenever you meet someone in Italy, everything changes. <laughs> Kurosawa saw the film with Tarkovsky, and the two went out after the screening. Kurosawa said, when the film was over, he stood up looking at me as if he felt timid. I said to him, very good. It makes me feel real fear. Tarkovsky smiled shyly but happily, and we toasted vodka at the restaurant and the film institute. Tarkovsky, who didn't drink usually, drank a lot of vodka and went so far as to turn off the speaker from which music had floated into the restaurant and began to sing the theme of Samurai from Seven Samurai at the top of his voice. As if to rival <laughs> him, I joined in, for I was at that moment very happy to find myself living on Earth. Oh, so cool. So awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Solaris was released in Moscow on February 5th, 1972 and did not release in the US until October 6th, 1976 albeit with an edited version, which was 30 minutes shorter. The film had an estimated budget of 1 million rubles, but box office returns are currently not publicly available. The film premiered at the Cannes Film Festival, where it won the Grand Prix Special Jury Prize and was nominated for the Palme d'Or. The film was well-received by critics overall and was also financially successful, having sold 10.5 million tickets despite being only in five theatres in the USSR. It played for 15 years straight in the USSR without Damn. breaks. Yeah. Wow. That just, it just points to how different the culture must be over there at that time than it was here. Mm-hmm. That like, this is the movie that plays for over a decade. Can you, and this is the seventies, like, you know, it was 72. Like when does Star Wars is 74, right? 77. 77. Okay. So, and what, when is Jaws? 75 yeah so like american film is it's already like getting towards the blockbuster era right and yeah but they don't allow stuff from other cultures into the soviet union right that's like the whole thing is that there's uh you know it's it's they 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 have complete control over popular culture but you can't imagine a movie like this being this successful in america like that would just it just does not equate with our cultural like values but Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's pretty cool. And it's also great to hear how successful it was. I mean, of course, it's like a legendary movie now, but I, I didn't really expect it to be as successful in its time, especially mm-hmm. because uh, people hated 2001 here. <laughs> it's uh, true. <laughs> this appetite for like, you know, challenging science fiction, I guess, was a bit larger in, in, in the Soviet Union at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. Lem was uh, was unhappy with the final film because it was not similar enough to his book. <laughs> kind of a uh, a, a, a uh, Stephen King uh, response. Yeah, and it's you know similar to what was going on between Arthur C. Clarke and Kubrick. They were yeah. not a hundred percent on the same page, and it is another case of a of a filmmaker kind of just being like. I'm going to do my own thing. Thanks for your help. I'm done with you. (laughs) I'm in favor of, you know. I mean, that's what adaptation is. Yeah, you you have to do your own thing. (laughs) Yeah. 
Uh, Tarkovsky himself was also disappointed because uh, he felt it wasn't as good as Stalker. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, Stalker doesn't come out until 79. So I guess he achieved like what he wanted to do in Stalker and this paled for him. I guess so. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one size fits all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. All right, we have finally reached the ocean of Solaris. Now, listeners, uh, watch as we become completely absorbed. It's my turn to share my scene, I believe. I think that's right. Yeah. It is. I went first on 2001 <laughs> and you went first on 2010. I Great. get to go first. <laughs> Fine. Fine uh, by me. I will manifest for you the darkest regions of my mind will be made reality. I wonder if you're going to manifest the same thing as me. I feel like we're, we're on a similar wavelength with this film, except for the ending, which you and I interpret completely differently. Yeah. I mean, I'm open to any interpretation of the ending. I just, I, I, I like the idea that you can look at it from a bunch of different angles. Uh, yeah. But the ending is not, I think, the center of this film. Um, I was very uh, inspired by the levitation scene. Is oh, that great. where your head's at it as well? No, completely different, but I love that scene. Okay. Yeah, so I think it's it's over the two hour mark into this movie. Uh, you, you mentioned two hours, eleven it. minutes. Yeah, so it's right there. Um, it is the one moment where we see the the cosmonauts affected in any way by the effects of being in outer space. It's kind of funny. They mentioned to to Chris and Hari that there is like a moment in the night when things. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when things lift up and um i think it's the scene immediately following that that uh i guess chris and harry are like all right let's stay up and check it out (laughs) and (laughs) what hits you first is just how like disarming and beautiful it is it's just so fucking beautiful uh they 
they're together in I don't know the steakhouse room. <laughs> it's like this. <laughs> it's a library. They call it a library. Yeah. <laughs> there's a chandelier and there's like a, a candelabra. It's all very like stately, I guess. And um, they're they're hanging out, embracing each other, and everything starts to lift off of the floor, off of the surface, and just hover. I think one of the reasons it's so disarming is because, you know, it's the first time we see something like this in the film. Yeah. And you're you're knowing full well that they're in space all this time, so you're wondering when this is going to happen. And I think you kind of get used to the idea that, like, oh, this is just kind of like, uh, you know, a floating boiler room. There There isn't going to be any cool space stuff up here. But and then it happens. And, uh, you know, it works on a lot of thematic levels too. Like so much of this film, uh, Hari and Chris, their relationship and, and really like the existence of them as a couple is, is hovering throughout this movie in this liminal space of like, Mm. you know, what are they? Uh, you didn't like her when she was alive and then you became obsessed with her now when she died and now she's back. So like, now what is she to you and and what is he to her? I mean, she is, she is fake. She is a replica. Uh, And, you know, the film definitely explores like what it means to be human. You could probably make some philosophical arguments that Hari is indeed human. Like she fulfills all of the, all of, you know, everything that you need to be a human being, but she is very much like not from this world in, right. in the She's way that we know. Right, made of these unstable neutrinos from the ocean. Yeah. Like I, I would hesitate to say she is not a naturally like occurring creature because like she comes from nature of, of this, of this ocean. It's just not in the way that we're used to. And which leads me to, uh, uh, what I think Tarkovsky is most interested in 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 uh, in this film is, and this is something that Koganada brings up in his video essay, so I can't 100% claim it, but Koganada brings up uh, how this movie is kind of like this literal collision of science and fiction. Mm. And I really love that idea. And I wanted to explore more in what he says in that essay that... Uh, Chris is a scientist. He's a psychologist. Like he is an empirically minded dude. And and Hari is is fake. She is fiction. So like in their uh in their you know relationship, it 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 really is like a science fiction relationship. And it might sound like obvious, you know, but in a scene like this, it's it's really poetic the way it's carried out. Like mm-hmm. uh the Bach piece that we mentioned earlier, you know, classical music, you know, science, empirical reality, uh, synthesizer sounds, which is, you know, fiction, fake, you know, not real instruments. Uh, the, the idea of like what it is to be a human being, what constitutes reality, like, you know, the interplay yes. between like all things observable and all things emotional and ambiguous uh, Tarkovsky is constantly exploring like the limits of science when there's no humanity involved. Yes. And, you know, even the film itself, and you texted me this uh, last week that like, this is such a deeply unknowable film, which I think is a great word to, to use here, unknowable. Um, because it, it's, it's not that it's like, like mysterious, I feel like more conveys like fiction, but like this is just sort of inherently like, 
I mean, I don't know if I even want to say ambiguous, like unknowable is the perfect way to put it. And Mm -hmm. it's a contradiction too, that like the act of telling a story, the act of making a film is literally like the act of conveying meaning, or at least like making like things known, you know, you're putting things on screen. And, and I think at this point in the film, and this is right before uh, Hari commits suicide, I think Tarkovsky reaches this conclusion that science and fiction are like not compatible. Like, Mm. I mean, it's obvious, like they are diametrically like opposed notions, like science and fiction, they're opposites. Um, But, you know, when they float together in this liminal space, like it's kind of what this film is doing all along. We're, we're constantly floating in this, this contradictory like space, like, the relationship yeah. doesn't make sense. These two, uh, these two notions do not uh, play together well. And uh, when they finish floating, Hari kills herself. And yet, like, you know, she will continue to float on as she keeps coming back over and over. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, you know, their relationship goes against nature. It is not like, you know, it is not a natural thing for these two human beings to be together and the 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 levitation is such a lovely and like beautiful way to show that i think Yeah, I, I really like that read. Um, I do think there's this, uh, you know, the, the the tension of that that interplay is so much of, of what the film is is interested in and, and is about. Um, I, my head my head's in a similar place, but defined by a completely different um, point in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that I gravitated towards, and again, like very similar sort of notion uh, as you is. There's this moment early on when Kelvin has uh, arrived on the the space station, and uh, is it Snout is the first guy he he talks to? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Snout, uh, when he is explaining to him, you know, how to get comfortable and how to live on board the ship, he says to him, "You should rip up bits of paper and and attach it to the oh, fan." I love that. Yeah, yeah. That's such a good good detail yeah because if you if you if you if you do this and you tape it to the fan it it sounds almost like leaves rustling (laughs) and this is a film that you know tarkovsky is making in many ways in response to 2001 a film that is you know completely inhuman and obsessed with accuracy and he wants to make a film that is all about emotion and feeling and that doesn't really care about being scientifically accurate we've talked in you know so far to the point even insofar as that the production designer is like throwing out the science magazines because what's the point of them if we're trying to go for an emotion and a feeling we don't need the science and much of what you were talking about it's this this tension of the the science versus the fiction but i i would say it, it, it goes even further and becomes about um accuracy versus um emotion or uh, hmm. fact versus emotion and so yeah, yeah 
Yeah. And we have we have these these humans that are, you know, they've they've gone to the depths of space. They're they're trying to define life. You know, you you just tried to define what is life, what is it to be human when you're talking about Hari? Like, you know, she is she natural? Is she a human being? What mm-hmm. is she? You know, they're trying to understand this. They're trying to understand uh these things that are inherently not accurate. Uh, these fictions, uh, to use your word, um, these these guests who are, you know, they they resemble humans, but are they humans? You know, what what actually are they? And it feels like it's just all kind of an extension of this this meta narrative of, uh, you know, you know the 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 genre being so rooted in science and him mm-hmm. trying to move away from that in order to land on something more human. You know, the visitors can never be accurate, but they bring forth their own humanity by and and in doing so bring out humanity in us. And our humanity fills them with enough love that they become real. <laughs> you know, um, the fact that Hari is eventually able to to go to sleep, uh, it just shows us that like it doesn't matter that she was or wasn't you know, accurate, wasn't real because Chris believed it, you know, and because Chris believed it, that's enough. And, 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 and that to me, uh, is the same thing as the paper in uh, the fan, you know, uh, it's, it's this very simple solve for the notion of I'm alone and lonely in space and nothing feels real to me anymore. But when I hear this, it it feels like the real thing, and and it feels like the sounds of home, and it grounds me. And uh, you know, it it's just this uh, this this wonderful kind of like overlapping of all these ideas. Um, and additionally, it, it speaks to the sort of you know the to to go to your scene directly. Mm-hmm. It speaks to the sort of ingenuity uh, of what people can do with with less. You know, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like yeah. those the, they had two cranes, and that's how they made it. It looked yeah. like people were floating in space, <laughs> and here it's like we've got nothing that that reminds us of home. All we have is this paper, it's and paper. we can and we can make something with it. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if it's real as long as it it makes you feel something. And you know, the the more that Chris feels love for Hari, the more real she becomes, to the point that she self actualizes and needs to take her own life, you know? And, and I think this, this paper is just kind of the start of that cycle. Mm. Um, so it has, it, the paper must be my eye of the duck. I love that, and uh, it forces me to uh, to say that um, lest we forget, uh, movies are not real. Either. Right, exactly. <laughs> like like Hari is a fiction. Hari is a yeah. movie. You know, as long there, as as long as is, she feels, as long as she can make us feel something, she's real. I'm always bringing this up when like we're fighting about you know realism in film and like realistic portrayals of history and like logic mm-hmm. in film and I always want to be like it's all fake <laughs> it's, it's just actors pretending yeah. like everything you're watching is just fake and we just uh, 
we just do this thing of like uh, suspending our disbelief and kind of going along with this like, I don't know, like communal hallucination or something, like yeah, whatever this that's, is that's that we exactly do. That's exactly what it is. And, yeah, and, yeah. and he just like, he announces that. He's, he's just yeah. like, here's some paper. It's going to make you feel safe. And, you know, <laughs> I, I think another really uh, integral part of that, that image is uh, the image that this film begins on of those leaves yes, rustling, the leaves in the, rustling in the, in the pond. Wind, yeah. uh, there's something about those leaves just kind of like twirling in that pond that uh, it feels so human and, and so earthly, but also so... Uh, so alien it, it does feel alien but before yeah. before that brown leaf floats across the across the surface of the pond yeah. and you just see the green like reeds and mm-hmm. seaweed swirling in the in the water that feels alien you know? right it and we're not sure second, like you, yeah. th- you think we might be on a different planet in the opening it, that's that's exactly. the effect it had on me yeah yeah and so it's yeah it it speaks to that as well and therefore to the ending too where once again we are we are met with these images and this time this time it's not leaves this time it is in fact paper you know yeah yeah this is this is a film that like you got to show up with like a shovel and a brush and like (laughs) like a rake and like you got to get in there and and like you got to get digging into it. There's so much to, to find. Like, yeah. it's just one of those movies that like you really, if you do the work, you would just be rewarded again and again and again. Uh, not every film is like that. Like, uh, certainly yeah. not many of the movies we've covered on, on our show, but every once in a while, a movie like this, I would say even more so than 2001, like there is just so much in this to unpack. Uh, mm-hmm. I think Kubrick is a bit more literal as a filmmaker. It's until... so fu- it's so funny to 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 like you know, <laughs> three episodes into this being like Kubrick feels literal. Like, yeah, like, Kubrick is so mainstream. We, we spent all of uh, two thousand one being like, I can't believe how like non literal this is. And yeah, then, then you get here and you're like, nope, this is really non literal. Yeah. <laughs> But but then of course it is it is very uh, it is very clear in the announcement of certain things. Yeah, in, they in say this, it out loud. They say mostly, so much out right? loud. Yeah. Like, you know, I was just looking through. You know, my my notebook is mostly just quotes. You know, yeah. Um, there's a lot of good ones. When a man is happy, the meaning of life and other eternal themes rarely interest him. These questions should be asked at the end of one's life, but we don't know when will life will end. And it's just like, yeah, that's, that, that, there you go. That's, that's a read on the entire film. It's just, you know, this is a man who is depressed. And so he's manifesting his wife. And, you know, if he, uh, if he was a happy man, that wouldn't have happened. And he wouldn't be having to ask the questions, what is humanity? Is this a human being? Who am I? Who is she? Yeah. Man, there, There's so many of them. Like my, my favorite one, which I think speaks to the themes that we are, that you and I are both most interested in is, don't turn a scientific problem into a common love story. And it's like, that's actually the antithesis of Tarkovsky's entire, you know, uh, you know, perspective here, where he's like, the only way for me to make a science fiction film is to make it a common love story. Maybe not common in the sense that most people are, you know, most people are fortunate enough not to, uh, you know, have the, the exact kind of relationship that, that Chris and Harry had, but certainly common enough that the the film at its core is this this emotional love story. I mean, also the quote Doctor Snout says uh, he has got a lot of good quotes. I mean, he's the one with the big monologue. 
Uh, I think this is in the same. He says, we don't want to conquer space at all. We want to expand earth endlessly. We don't want other worlds. We want a mirror. We seek contact and we and will never achieve it. We are in the foolish position of a man striving for a goal he fears and doesn't want. Yes. Man needs man. I mean, I wrote that one down too. I like paused and rewound several times so I could get it right. And then of course realized it was on IMDb. But um, yes, it's, it's so, so good because even the notion that they're like, you know, when in the, in the first act, when they're on earth and they're watching that archival video and, and Burton is saying like, I saw wild stuff on that planet. And they're like, you're hallucinating and we should consider bombing it. It's like, it's like, how is the first response to be like, we should no longer explore this. Uh, and if we do explore it, we should be prepared to destroy it. It's like, that's yeah, the I mean, opposite of exploration. That's the opposite right. of, uh, yeah. It, it seems so silly, but, uh, and yet like so realistic. Yes. That, like, but I think if we like truly want to uh, find life out there, we need to be prepared for it to, I don't know, be an ocean of consciousness, be something yeah. that we would never, you know, would, uh, it's like something unimaginable. But um, I wonder if that pushes the limits of like, of our, <laughs> our notions of science and life. Cause of course it you does. Know, it, it breaks everything. Everything breaks down when like the whole, like, I think therefore I am becomes, well, like what if these beings are, <laughs> they're able to have thought, but they are not real. Mm -hmm. Uh, and yeah i mean there's just so much here (laughs) (laughs) it's a good movie yeah any other uh thoughts on uh on solaris i mean many (laughs) probably (laughs) thinking about this movie for uh for years on end um it is so similar to 2001 in the exploration of like loneliness and Mm -hmm. and the, the desolation of the vacuum of space but it is also, uh, it also could not be more different than that movie. That is very accurate, one might say. Ah. Thanks everyone for listening. We want to hear from you. Tell us about your Eye of the Duck scenes. You can find us on all social media at Eye of the Duck Pod. Email us at contact at eyeofthedockpod.com and join the conversation on our Discord server. If you want to talk about movies, movie scenes, and all things film, find an invite link to Eye of the Discord in our show notes. You can find me on Twitter at Dominic Nero or on my website at domnero.com. And you can find me on social media at Adam Vol. That's V-O-L-E. And you can watch my films online at adamvollerich.com. That's V-O-L-E-R-I-C-H. The main soundtrack in our episode intro is the recording of Strauss's On the Beautiful Blue Danube that's heard in 2001 A Space Odyssey. The audio cues are pulled from various space movies that we cover in this series. The music you're hearing right now is the recording of Cacciatorian's Gayane Ballet Suite, also from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Our logo was designed by Francesca Volrich. You can purchase her work at francescavolrich.com slash shop. This episode was edited by Eric Gunnison. Thank you, Eric. And special thanks to Parth Marate for providing research for this episode. Thanks, Parth. Next week, we are watching... Solaris from 2002, directed by Steven Soderbergh, which you can stream with a subscription to HBO Max, or you can rent or buy from your favorite video on demand platform. And the next time you watch a movie, remember to keep your eye on the duck.
It's full of stars. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Eye of the Duck early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious. And if that's true, then you're in luck. Because, once again, Mr. Ballin Podcast Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Each week on the Mr. Ballin Podcast, you'll hear new stories about inexplicable encounters, shocking disappearances, true crime cases, and everything in between. Like our recent episode titled White Dust. After a middle-aged couple fail to answer their daughter's messages and calls, the daughter drives the few hours to her parents' house to check on them, but after arriving and seeing both her parents' cars in the driveway, the daughter gets an uneasy feeling and just can't stomach going inside. To hear the rest of that story and hear hundreds more stories like it, follow Mr. Ballin Podcast on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen early and ad-free on Amazon Music.